Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. With me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, today, we've got what I'm going to call our unlimited episode. First, we're going to start by talking about Verizon's move to offer unlimited data plans. And then we're going to talk about the near unlimited growth in New York City's budget. Uh, so, Chris, let's kick it off with Verizon's unlimited data plan. Today, Verizon announced that they were going to start selling unlimited data plans again. This is the first time they've offered unlimited data plans since 2011. Uh, the move is clearly a response to Sprint and T-Mobile's moves. Uh, they, Sprint and T-Mobile, both the third and fourth largest uh, wireless carriers, in late 2016, they brought back unlimited data plans, and they've really been taking a lot of market share from Verizon and AT&T. And I don't even know if it's just the market share loss for Verizon and AT&T, so much as they're the largest wireless carriers, and Sprint and T-Mobile have been hammering them in advertisements. Sprint had a Super Bowl ad where someone faked their own death to get out of a Verizon contract. So uh, Verizon's clearly been hurting. And I also thought this was kind of funny because as recently as September 2016, when Sprint and T-Mobile introduced these uh, offers, Verizon CFO came on and basically said, we're never going to offer unlimited data plans again. Those are money losers. Take it to the bank. We're not offering them again. Six months later, they're hurting and they're offering them again. Uh, Chris, got a lot of thoughts on it, but I'm going to turn it over to you for first thoughts. You know, it'll be interesting to see... Um, when you look at the increase in broadband availability, you know, I think it's had a big impact on office productivity throughout the whole 21st century. All of the extra broadband, if you look at the number of hours that have saved and ability to free up time, all of the time has been spent on Facebook. Uh, so, so it's not clear like how we're better off because of this. Similarly with smartphones, you know, people are using more data, but it's not as if they're using it for some kind of incredibly important productive goal. They're mostly just watching cat videos on YouTube or Angry Bird Movie on Netflix. Uh, so it's not clear that we're really so uh, better if off. If they were watching dog videos instead of cat videos, would you have less of an issue with yes, it? Yes, I would. Absolutely. I, I actually issue. agree with you there. I, I actually agree with you there. You know, I think that, um, so, so, um, so yeah, they want these plans. Um, and this market is a viciously competitive one. T-Mobile has really acted as a maverick firm on pricing. Mm-hmm. And it really has brought the other ones along with them in many cases. Um, and the wireless advertising market, as you mentioned during the Super Bowl, makes it seem even more competitive. Many of the ads are negative. Uh, the Sprint spokesman being an ex-Verizon trader. Uh, and, you know, really uh, kind of, uh, you know, you have uh, these types of uh, things uh, that really, uh, I think, get the attention of the big behemoths, Verizon and AT&T. You know, and the Sprint spokesman being an ex-Verizon trader is so interesting because it shows that these spokespeople do create something of a brand. So you have to worry, like, I haven't seen the, the really hot team... Maybe that's not politically right, but whatever. The really hot T-Mobile girl who, you know what, it is it is politically correct if you roll her out in like skin-tight leather outfits and are just showing how attractive she is. I haven't seen her in a while. Maybe Verizon should think about hiring her to be like, I used to be with T-Mobile and now I'm with Verizon or something. But neither here nor there. But I do like what you're saying on uh, the competition. You know, in general, the wireless market, it's a four-player market. Mm-hmm. T-Mobile, Sprint, and then the two largest ones are Verizon and AT&T. There are a couple others, but a lot of people don't realize in 
in most cases, if you have another wireless provider, they're just a name who handles all the customer support. They actually use the Sprint, the Verizon, or the T-Mobile or AT&T uh, airwaves. So it really is only a four-person market. Uh, and this goes to show you, you know, I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about will Sprint and T-Mobile merge? Will Verizon buy T-Mobile? Will there be mergers? And a lot of consumer groups are going to point to this move by Verizon and say, hey, there are four players in this market and they are going at each other viciously. Like, how could going from four to three be good for competitor? be good for consumers, be good for competition? It might be good for them, but it doesn't seem like it'll be good for everyone else. I don't think this necessarily is the kind of thing that will roll uh, Ajit Pei, the new uh, FCC commissioner, uh, chairman uh, now, uh, but it does add political complexity to M&A. A four to three deal here would really be controversial. But at the same time, I think that uh, both Verizon and AT&T have waded into political controversy in the past, sometimes yeah. successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. These companies themselves are controversial. They're not loved uh, by consumers for the most part. Um, and uh, so I think that uh, they'll have a fight in their hands, but this is a fight that looks like it's coming. Yeah, so it, I, I do wonder, and we were kind of bantering back and forth before this podcast, you know, Verizon had to do this move because clearly they were feeling competitive pressures and losing people. But were they almost doing it as a three-dimensional chess move where they were like, hey, if we lower prices and create uh, show pricing concerns now – would regulators block use this as one of the examples to block Sprint and T-Mobile? And maybe we're better in a four versus three market if Sprint and T-Mobile merge. Interesting there. Personal story, AT&T, uh, I had a billing issue. You know, uh-huh. This is the reason people have issues with them. I had to spend four months to get a simple, simple billing issue resolved and probably 10 to 12 hours on the phone. You know, these giant four, these giant almost monopolies, they're so monolithic. That's why consumers hate them. Uh, Could could I I throw in a little hit against Verizon? Um, uh, I feel like they spend so much ad dollars and so much of your mind share trying to scream at you when you're not interested. And then when you are interested, I walk into a Verizon store and say, hey, (laughs) I have a Verizon phone. I would like another Verizon phone. I would like to take the data from my one Verizon phone to the other as I switch to a Verizon plan and I'd like you to transfer it. And they look at you like you came from another planet. They're like, whoa, buddy, slow down there. So you bought two of our products and our service. We have no idea what to do with that. My, um, uh, excuse me, sir. Like, it's not our job to upgrade people. We're the, we're the you're coming from AT&T to Verizon store. Verizon customers go somewhere else. I was paying them every which way and they did not know what to do with me and they really were hoping I would leave. Uh, my uh, cousin who's in the same situation this past week uh, they left him standing around for about an hour so he spent the entire time reprogramming every phone in the Verizon store to show AT&T, T-Mobile and Sprint ads which I thought was pretty funny <laughs> that is a good one uh, let's just turn it back let's just turn it back to the M&A angle for a second sure. so we mentioned the Sprint and T-Mobile the other thing I, I wonder is Look, Verizon said previously, we've got all the spectrum. We mm-hmm. cannot, you know, we cannot support unlimited video streaming. It just un- it's, would take up too much of our spectrum. Yeah. So you do have to wonder if they're switching to unlimited again. You know, what does this mean for them for M&A? Do they have to go after a Sprint or T-Mobile to get spectrum? We've mentioned Dish a lot on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Do they need to go to Dish to buy them? You know, buying Dish gets them the DirecTV piece of the AT&T DirecTV deal and a heck of a lot of spectrum that can help them in this unlimited stream. You mean would buying charter give them the backbone to help install a lot of towers to help them roll out more LTE and support this so it's a very interesting angle the auction spectrum just closed I think uh, companies can start talking to each other about M&A starting mid-March 
it's going to be interesting. I think we're going to see the wild, wild west for mergers, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. you have anything else there? I have nothing to add. All right, nothing to add. Why don't we turn over to New York City's unlimited budget? So it's budget season at City Hall in New York. And, uh, you know, if you're, in the, if you're in the getting something funded business, business is booming for New York City's budget. The budget this year calls for $85 billion in spending, up from $70 billion in, I believe it was fiscal year 2013 or 14, the year before Mayor de Blasio took office. So that right there, $15 billion increase, 20% in three or four years, big increase. Uh, the budget's more than doubled since fiscal year 2003. And the big budget is raising a lot of concerns among people who think the city should be saving more for a rainy day, kind of because of an uncertain economic outlook, the sensitivity, the sensitivity of New York City to a downturn in real estate or finance, and even threatened cuts from President Trump to New York City and other sanctuary cities. Uh, so, Chris, you know, I think we've been blasting a lot of Republican policies recently. So mm-hmm. I thought it was only fair for us to turn to, I don't think we're going to have too much favorable to say about uh, budget overspends in New York City. I thought you could have the first whack at it. Well, uh, as far as a partisan issue, you know, New York is a one-party government, and setting aside which party that is, it has a lot of the characteristics of a one-party government uh, that's shared with D- Detroit and D.C. It does not have the push and pull, the checks and the balances. Uh, it, it, in terms of spending, it's between uh, more and even more. There's yeah. really not another side to that conversation. We, we pulled this conversation from a Wall Street Journal, uh, I think it was front page article, talking about the budget season. And there were a lot of quotes in there. And my favorite was some of the con- the congressmen were saying, congressmen, congresswomen were saying, hey, we need to do as much as we can now while we've got tax dollars coming in. And it almost shows like politicians don't think about saving for a rainy day, adjusting for downturns, thinking about what happens if uh, budgets come in a little bit. It's we've got money. We've got political demands. We've got a reelection. Let's go spend. One of the concerns on a government budget that's different than most private sector budget is that both the revenue side and the spending side, in this case in New York, it presupposes a strong economy. Both are impacted massively when the economy softens. You have revenue going way down. You have spending needs going way up. Uh, If, when that changes uh, and both uh, are affected, you have a big problem. And if you look at how they're spending, it's mostly on Headcount: 16,000 new hires has a massive uh, ratchet effect. When you think of a ratchet, it's easier to go in one direction than the other. As pension costs soar, these are 16,000 people whose main job is to maintain headcount. Uh, you know, Manhattan Institute es- estimates about two months of reserves uh, that they have uh, if there's a problem. Uh, and this government really gets to the point that the government itself is self-aware. Its leaders represent the government. And when you have tensions, even tensions between, say, uh, poor and largely minority uh, school students in tougher neighborhoods versus the government, uh, boy, the government is very good at asserting their issues. Um, two, little, two little thoughts I have specific to, to New York. Um, one is, that the, especially at the high end of New York revenue payers, 
New York is such a great logistics hub that I play the game frequently with people who are thinking about living in New York and say, what is it that you like to do in New York? Do you like do you like, want to go to a theater? Well, there, there was a, um, a hedge fund manager who, who missed his days in the city by a day. It cost him $40 million of taxes. Wait, um, wait days in the city. So New York, if you spend like 180 or 185 days in the city, you get to, you'll become a New York resident and yeah. have to pay, I think it's like a 10% income tax. Well, well, for convenience reasons, he had speed pass. Yeah. And he wanted to uh, go back to the city, to his home. He was tired of a party. His wife was out at a party. He kind of came home early by an hour or so, and he, he got off the, the number of days, cost him $40 million. And, and, and even at, at less grand scales, even if it's a tenth that or a hundredth that, uh, boy, does that play for a lot of plane tickets to visit New York. I mean, you can live in a no-tax or low-tax state. You want to go for the weekend, just go for the weekend. As a New York resident, who t- we are taping this podcast in Connecticut. He comes out to Connecticut every day. You are just hitting my soul so deeply right now, Chris. Um, and uh, the last little, the last, last little um, thing I was going to add is that um, philosophically, when I'm thinking about these issues, and it's not always a pro-spending restraint uh, uh, argument, but something I always like to think about is to say yes to easy yeses, say no to easy noes, and then maximize reversible decisions. Is like give yourself mm-hmm. more optionality mm-hmm. every day than you had the day before. Uh, putting a massive investment while things are going well on uncontrollable pension expenses is something that might be a great idea. I'll presuppose maybe they're doing exactly the right thing. They basically are spending every penny that the rating agencies will allow them to, but they are spending not just money, they're spending their future optionality. And if you think you're such a great decision maker, then don't you want your future self to have the ability to make decisions? And that's what they are throwing away. It's such a great point. So there are all these articles about bankrupt, mainly in California right now, but some in Florida, bankrupt companies, uh, bankrupt cities or near bankrupt cities that during the tech boom in the late 90s and early 2000s, their coffers were flush because they were getting lots of uh, mainly capital gains taxes from ridiculous startup tech IPOs, right? Mm-hmm. And when they did that, they passed all these great rules for uh, for union workers to give them crazy pension benefits. And they said, hey, you know, yeah, we're giving them a big increase, but right now we're making $10 million a year in capital gains taxes. We're going to make $10 million a year for the rest of the time. And as soon as the tech bubble burst, you know, they still had to pay out that $10 million per year in pension expense, but now they're only getting $1 million per year in uh, in capital gains tax or whatever. The $9 million has to come from elsewhere, and they've got all these stories of these smaller cities that have been dwarfed by these pension, uh, these pension fundings. And it's going to happen to a lot of big cities. We're not the first people to think this. A lot of people think this. But, you know, right now the good times are rolling and these cities are willing to spend. You know, and the pension thing that brings me back to one uh, another thing. I thought it was interesting. Uh, de Blasio was saying, hey, New York City's got a $5.5 billion reserve fund. So we've got plenty of money for save for a rainy day. And a lot of people, mainly his political opponents, but I think they've got a good point, were saying, yeah, but $4 billion of that is earmarked for higher pension spending. Like, if you think $1.5 billion of reserves on an $85 billion, I said, $85 billion budget, like, that is nothing. It is crazy how close that mar- that margin of safety or lack thereof is. If you get any type of downturn, uh, the city's going to be in trouble. And uh, it's scary. As a resident, it's scary. I'm sure they will be coming for more of all of our podcast riches in the near future. <laughs> I, think, I think that one of the good things about humility is 
when you can have humility is it's often deserved. You find reasons to deserve to be humble. But I think there's a, a big tension when you have a bonanza opportunity. And when you have a bonanza, you should take it, but you should call it what it is and say, I love getting windfalls, but that was a windfall. And I think what happens to people is they think, hey, no, I'm, I'm somebody who gets those things. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for my next year because I, I'm a guy who gets windfalls. It's not something that's an aberration. And a government can say the same thing. Like, well, no, we're a city that gets this kind of revenue. So where do we send it out the door next? Uh, and that the humility to say, this is rare. Yep. It yep. won't last. Yeah, look, I'm going to enjoy it, but not spend it. New York City only needs to look to, I, I believe it was the 70s when they had a, a uh, a budget crisis to say, oh yeah, like we are not a city that always gets windfalls, even though it might seem like that recently. I thought it was interesting. The article, you know, it highlighted the first thing de Blasio did when he came into office. He was supported by a lot of unions. Mm -hmm. The first thing he did was renew union contracts at much higher rates. For a while, he was fighting Uber to try to support the taxi drivers. And as you're saying, he's taking a temporary windfall and turning it into kind of permanent type funding because he's increasing union uh, union spending. Uh, anything else? Um, I just throw out that a lot of the taxes in New York City are bad taxes. And I mean that from a government perspective in terms of the predictability of the revenue. If you look at the very high end uh, New York resident, they're very mobile. Sometimes mm -hmm. they are foreign. They are um, uh, often vacant. A majority of the homes facing Central Park on a given day are often vacant. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a financial arrangement to say that you own something in the city. Another game I like to play not only is the, the going out in New York, but to say that think about the hotel room you can rent if you didn't own the place you own yeah. in New York for the number of days you're in the city. A lot of people can give up that residency. I guess for those oligarchs who are spending their country's fortunes, and it's not even them spending it, it's their handlers spending it, they don't even care. But neither here nor there. Let's, uh, sure. let's wrap it up there. That's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. We check all the ratings once per week means a lot to us, helps us keep this podcast grow going, and helps us keep this podcast growing. Uh, Chris, we really only talked about kind of T-Mobile, Verizon, the wireless companies. Are, do you have I, have a little, I have a little T-Mobile. A, a little T-Mobile. All right, no disclosures for me, and we will talk to you guys probably tomorrow.